So uh, we're going to talk about stewards of the image of God. Don't have any PowerPoint for this particular talk, uh, but you have an outline that you can follow with me. So let me uh, start with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, I'm just uh, totally dependent upon you and waiting upon your spirit to guide this last session. Uh, I believe you've placed something in my heart for some time now and I've addressed it three or four different occasions publicly and, and yet there's a burden that still will not be released within me and uh, just help me carry that burden today in such a way that it communicates clearly, transfers. If it needs to, others may be certainly bearing the same burden too, but uh, help us to, to be on the same page with you in counseling, that the knowledge of you, which is everything we need for life and godliness, is something we are passionate about, as we heard in our first session, that you have the power to accomplish, we heard in a second session, and that now we understand and can utilize um, all that we are learning about you to make our own lives different and uh, help other people's as well. So we dedicate this to you in your honor and your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, to save time, I want to uh, uh, only refer to the first uh, scripture that I have, which is Matthew 25, 14 to 30, by uh, reading a portion of it, making some application from it, and then using that application uh, to head into the content of what we're talking about in this session, which is stewards of the image of God. This parable of the talents beginning in 14 is talking about stewardship. And its focus is the stewardship of talents, which in those days and at that time meant primarily uh, financial things. It wasn't the talent of um, dancing or, or impersonating Elvis which a few of us have. Uh, but it is, it is financial. And uh, notice his words here toward the end of it as, uh, as we get down to verse um, 26. His master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So, take the talent from him. Give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now let me say, when we hear sermons about stewardship, and I've preached a number of them uh, myself over the years, that uh, preachers usually kind of collectivize them into three basic categories, and conveniently all starting with the letter T, time, talent, and treasures. Treasure. Um, And certainly we, we need to think about our stewardship of our time and of our talents, meaning uh, those kind of talents, such as uh, you can dance or you can impersonate illness or you can make pottery or whatever, uh, or your treasure, what you do with your money. But I want to suggest to you that uh, there is a fundamental stewardship that undergirds all the other things that we just talked about in those three T's. And that is the stewardship of the image of God. It all starts in Genesis 1, where God says, upon the creation of Adam and Eve, he gives his purpose for making them, that uh, in all of the creation that he had made up to that point, we find clear in Romans in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, that uh, you could look at the at the things that were made, and you could see God, you could know God. The heavens and earth declare the glories of God's selves, Psalm 9. Uh, looking at the creation reveals God. Something about God can be known. It's evident. It's clear. In fact, it's put within us to acknowledge that, it says in Romans, and we're without excuse because it is so clear. But that truth is suppressed because of our unrighteousness, because of the fall. Uh, and, And so it's so suppressed in us that we refuse to believe that it's clear. Our self deceived hearts will not allow us to admit that there is a God. And he is awesome and he is almighty and he's creative and all those things that can come as Romans 1 says, it can clearly come. So after God makes everything up until it's time for Adam and Eve, it's God saying in so many words, I'll put it in my own words, but God is saying, I have made all of this to reflect what I'm like, what I my capabilities and almighty powers. This this creation speaks of me. In fact, Psalm 9 says, in very poetic ways, it says, the creation shouts words, loud shouts out from the creation all the time, every day, the glories of God. But nobody hears it. Nobody sees it until they get saved and recognize that. So on day six, God is essentially saying, now let us make man in our image and in our likeness. That's different from showing something about his capabilities in creation. Now he's going to show something of himself in an area of personality and intelligence and also functionality because when he makes Adam and Eve, he says, you're going to be in my image and my likeness and Then he tells them, when he makes them, first thing out of his mouth is, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
Now, you think about that. What had God just done for five and a half days, six days? He had just been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth, hadn't he? So what he's saying when he makes them, he says, okay, what I've just done, you do in my image. You do it. Fill the earth. Be like me. I'm equipping you for that. That's what I want you to do. I want you to be like me. I want you to show what I'm like so that the visible creation can have a manifested revelation of me. And second thing he said, I want you to have dominion over fish of the sea, birds of the air, animals, and creeping things. How many of you know there are creeping things out there? It'd be nice to know that we have dominion over those. (laughs) Incidentally, before they got the opportunity to begin to be fruitful and multiply, God sent them a test by giving them a home to have dominion over, a garden to watch over, to govern, to manage, like he was doing with his whole universe that he had made. He was having dominion. He was governing everything, the organization of the planets and their order of uh, orbits and all that kind of stuff. They didn't run into each other. It was all managed very well. And now... Adam and Eve are supposed to do that together as a team with Adam in the lead and she as the helper. They're going to manage the garden, govern it, with a view to the fact that eventually they'll be managing all the animals and and all the birds of the fields and all the birds of the field. Birds of the air. And uh, I call it a test. The test was this, Adam and Eve, here's the garden. Now I'm going to send into the garden a creeping thing and see what you do. Creeping thing is some of the garden. Do Adam and Eve take dominion over the creeping thing? No. Instead of being in his image and likeness, he lets the creeping thing take dominion over them. I mean, Adam lets the creeping thing take dominion. Adam should have taken dominion. In fact, Adam could have imaged God immediately by thinking, when I look at God and see that I'm supposed to be like him, is there anything I can, I can relate to in my knowledge of God that shows what you do with creeping things that come into your abode? And I don't know how Adam would know this, but I assume that he knew that God had that same creeping thing come into his garden earlier. And when Satan came into the holy place, what did God do? He cast him out and a third of the angels with him. But Adam didn't copy God, didn't image God, didn't reflect God. He rejected the opportunity to image and be like God, that God gave him his first test into advancing, into uh, governing. And, you know, in Christ, it's all come back to us because in Christ, we're going to be kingdoms. We're, gonna, we're all kings and priests right now, but there's going to be a time we're going to rule and reign with him over everything in creation. So we're being restored 
to imaging God in all of its aspects. God's grand purpose, I'll give you a big picture, is God's grand purpose is that his invisible world is made visible. He makes the creation a visible world, which is a reflection of the invisible world with human beings being a personal revelation of him. We image him, we mirror him in a creation that is a material visible manifestation of an invisible world that we don't know much about other than when Moses was on the mountain, he was shown a pattern of the way things were around the throne and the tabernacle was built upon that model. There's stuff up there, wherever up there is, that's invisible. And God's invisible. God wants to be seen. It creates a whole visible world. We're a part of it. And we become the crown of his creation because we get to represent God. We get to be like God. We can do God things. But we blew it through Adam. In Genesis 2.15, Adam's failure was to do that very thing at his first test to be an image and likeness of God. Take a closer look at 2.15 to get clearer the assignment. God told Adam and Eve, Adam especially, Eve hadn't been made it when this comment was made, but God said to Adam, I'm putting you in the garden to cultivate and keep it. Cultivate and keep it. God chose two words to um, define Adam's assignment, what his task was. Two very important words, I would say, because those two words is probably the simplest summary of the task of every man, especially, and by extension, every man who is married has a wife who is then supposed to be a helper primarily to help with that task, not necessarily to get my pipe and slippers. Most people don't understand theologically the whole issue of submission, and don't get me started on this, but submission is not a wife doing what a husband wants him to do. Her, her submission is theologically based in the first marriage at being a helper to enable her husband to do the task that God gives him to do in being the image of God, of managing and governing creation and creeping things and being fruitful and multiply. Submission is the heart of that. Now, because of the fall, it's extended into uh, other areas, but that's the heart of it theologically. So you can tuck that away at no charge and uh, meditate on it. There's rich things when you meditate on that. But let's get back to Adam and Eve in the garden. He's got to cultivate. And cultivate is a simple word to understand. You, you're, you're basically taking basic resources that God provides to you. They could be skills. They could be talents. They could be uh, certain amounts of knowledge and certain things. Uh, whatever God has equipped you with and given you and provided for you, you're to take that and cultivate it, which means make it abundantly prosperous. Be fruitful with that. Make it multiply. So you've got a basic starter garden 
God is saying. It's in good shape. There's no weeds, nothing. I've given you a starter garden. You get in that garden, and I'm going to make you a wife to help you. And you're going to make that garden grow. It's, it's going to be fruitful and multiply. Now, he gives him a wife. He's got to be a cultivator of his wife because that's part of the resources that God's given. It's got to be taken care of so that she will be fruitful in her ability to help him. She doesn't exist for his benefit, but she is a responsibility to him to make him a better man, make him a better image bearer of God. And so he takes care of her, and he's supposed to watch over her and cultivate her and develop what gifts and skill and tattoos she has instead of let her dry up and he develops all that he is. A little extra on marriage. Now, um, second thing he's supposed to do is guard, cultivate and keep. The Greek word, I mean, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word is shamar. It's translated keep, protect, guard, watch over. It's used throughout the Old Testament to describe that kind of activity where someone is responsible to watch over something like the overseers over a garden to stand on towers and be a, a watchkeeper over the fields because little foxes will come in and spoil the vines. Anybody with that kind of oversight activity is responsible to watch over the work that they have done with their hands. You make a garden, you got to watch over it. And inherent and implied in that Hebrew term and played out in many of the passages in the Old Testament is this implication. You can work hard, diligently, and not be lazy at all. And you can lose what you put so much time into. Something can come and rob you of the blessing and the fruitfulness that's supposed to come from there unless you're guarding what you do. If you don't guard the work of your hands, you may lose the very benefit you're working toward. I could go off on another tangent. I'm famous for that. But think about that. Think about companies that used to be grand and prosperous and don't exist anymore. And it wasn't because they were good companies that produced a good product. It was because somebody start, stopped shamaring that business and they let people come in or creeping things who changed policies or got greedy or whatever and the whole thing's gone. Their investments, their inheritance, all the stuff they had planned, there's nothing left. And I can even get political right now. But I won't. So Adam and Eve, was, Adam is guarding his garden. I'm sorry, that's where he blew it. He was ready to cultivate. And the creeping thing came into the garden and he didn't guard it. He didn't shamar. That's what, that was his first mistake. He didn't want to image God. He wanted to be independent. She did as well. And he didn't shamar her or the garden. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. He didn't raise a finger to stop the serpent. He didn't raise his voice to interrupt their conversation. He chose to do nothing. And so let me put it this way from Matthew 25. His 
stewardship of the image of God that was given to him was hidden. He hid, he hid his talent. He buried it. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with the stewardship of the image of God in us? Being like Christ, growing to become more like Christ, concentrating passionately on what we can do to even more show what God is like through us. Because that's our calling. That is our destiny of all destinies. That's come right out of Genesis 1. Mankind was created to do just that. Just that. And we're restored to that in Jesus Christ. How are we doing with that? Do we show what Jesus Christ is like? And you know why we're supposed to come like, become like Jesus Christ? It always tells us, we're clear in the scriptures about that, uh, we're supposed to become more like Christ. We're supposed to be conformed into his image. Well, there's a real simple reason why. Because Jesus Christ could say, as a human being, when you've seen me, what? He imaged God. He was in the likeness of God. And you say, well, he was God. No, you're missing the point. Yeah, he was God. But he left aside his glory. It was nothing to be grasped at. He performed as a human being the way Adam was supposed to perform as a human being, imaging God. He did it. That was easy for him because he was born without a sinful nature. But so was Adam. Adam had a choice. He didn't choose to image God. He wanted his own identity apart from God. And we fell into the trouble we're in today. And that's why people come for counseling. Because, listen, as simple as we can make it, people come for counseling, and any of us that have problems with people or with God, is precisely because we are not imaging God. Can't get any more basic than that. Every assignment that we have, whether we're adults, teenagers, or children, like stewards of talents and time and treasure, we will give an account for. Because did we perform those duties as an image or a reflection of God, or didn't we? Did we do it to make a name for ourselves? Were we trying to develop our own image and identity and we want uh, credit or glory for our individual accomplishments? Are we doing it as Jesus did it? Who said, I'm only um, saying the things I hear my father say. I'm only doing the things I see my father do. I've not come to be minister to, but to minister to others. I've come to reflect the Father. It's not about me. I'm here to show you the Father. Haven't you been so long with me and you don't know that if you see me, you've seen the Father? His whole existence was not wrapped up in his own deity. 
His whole existence was as a human to show other humans what it's supposed to be like originally. And he's saying you can do the same things and even greater things. He wasn't talking about walking on water. He was talking about being a human being, the way human beings were made to be. We can do that. Counseling, discipleship is all about getting people back on that page. And if we don't have that big picture, we can't make it clear to them because I'm more and more convinced the older I'm getting and the more I'm studying that um, if we can just get people to to see the, the glory for God primarily, Uh, and the privilege that is that we have been chosen by God, Ephesians chapter 1. We have been particularly chosen by God. I don't have an idea why he didn't choose some other people. I'm not even going to go there theologically. I can argue with that too. But but, the point is, I I have no idea why he chose me. I don't know if you think you were chosen for a particular reason. But the Bible gives no indication other than I wanted to choose you. You know. There was nothing in you. You were rebellious just like everybody else. But I chose you. I chose you for a unique purpose because I'm bringing forth people to be like we were supposed to be in the, in the original thing uh, with Adam and Eve. God chose you. And God chose me. What a privilege that we, of all people, get to show the world in this life something of what God is really like. The world is waiting to see God, right? They want to see God. God cannot be seen. He's invisible. So he needs a mirror image. I use this illustration from a an old movie that I uh, grew up watching some of those black and white things. And remember, remember when the world was black and white? Everybody remember that? I remember hearing about a kid who said, uh, Mom and Dad, when did everything turn color? Well, it always was color, but TVs weren't. And this particular uh, visual I have is about... Uh, I stand in front of a mirror and I see me, right? And you do too. You see me too in your mirror, right? Now, stand in front of a mirror and you see your own image and that's what you expect to see. But there's one variation on that. Anybody remember Bella Lugosi? Yeah. Yeah. Dracula. Let me bite you on the neck. Blood. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I want to. Never mind. Now, in in the Dracula movies that I saw them all, there was almost always a scene in a big old-fashioned room in those big old-fashioned mansions and... Dracula would in a room with other people, of course, nobody knows he's a vampire. Unless 
he walks in front of the mirror and there's no image. I don't know how they did it without special effects. They didn't have any of it back in those days. But he'd walk past the mirror and the mirror would show other people and stuff on the wall and you never see him walk across the mirror. And as a kid, I thought, what is wrong with that? And somebody explained to me, vampires don't, don't, uh, what? Cast a shadow or cast a reflection. So that's an identity issue. Vampires don't have a reflection in a mirror. I thought about that when I started getting this mirroring concept with God. Dracula came to my mind. And and I thought, that's just the opposite, and rightfully so. Because with God, you have a mirror, and you have an image, but nothing in front of the mirror. With Dracula, you got something in front of the mirror and no image on the mirror. You following me? Am I going too fast? But with God, you have a mirror and you can't see anything in front of the mirror. You look at the image in the mirror and what do you see? You see people, you see me and you. But in front of the mirror, there's nothing. Because in a sense... We are nothing but reflections of God. We're images of God. We are light because he is light. And like I quoted Tozer in my workshop, Tozer said, um, when, you, when you take a sunbeam and cut it off from the sun, it vanishes there's nothing there. The sun is the source of and gives being and essence to the sunbeam. If you cut it off from the sun, you have no sunbeam. And I think we should think of ourselves like this because we were created to be the sunbeam. And that's our identity. And if we lose our connection to God and, it's, and the reason for our existence, a raison d'etre, that sounds better than I want to kiss you. Anyway, then we cease to be important. We, see, we, we become nothing. Our whole identity existence is to be a reflection of God. This is the heart of counseling. Colossians 1 talks about Jesus Christ having preeminence in all things. Does he have preeminence in our counseling? Only if he's the focus of everything we're doing. And the only way Jesus can be the focus of our counseling is that you and I who are counselors have to see that the real issue with anybody we're counseling is they're not like Jesus Christ. That's why they're having problems. Because Jesus Christ has no problems. He has no problems with anybody. He doesn't have problems with his father. He doesn't have problems with any other people. Oh, other people had problems with him, but he didn't have problems with them. He never got to a place where he says, I'm struggling with a relationship with Judas over here. Can somebody help me? I don't know what to do. Or I don't know how to think about these Pharisees. They're, they're negative all the time, and they're uh, ruining people's lives with all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I, I just, no, he, he knew exactly what to think. He knew exactly what to say. 
He knew exactly what to do. He had no problems with sinners, with evil, with the devil, with his father, anything. That's the perfect life. Imagine you and me and people with problems getting to a place where they walk through life in a sin-cursed world and they have no problems with that. They know what it's all about. They understand how to relate, how to respond, how to whatever in a sinful world. The more you get to know God, the more you're going to be like God. That's why today is so important. Getting to know God better so that we can trust him implicitly in everything. Then we can walk through life and handle things as they come up, fed by the wisdom of Scripture, renewing our minds so that we actually think scripturally. We get to think scripture like this. It comes out of our brains as soon as something comes up. The more you read the Bible, the more you renew your mind, and the more you start to automatically think like God thinks, think like Jesus thinks, and you handle it. None of us will do it perfectly, but there ought to be progression as we grow in Christ. And so when we see counselors come in struggling with problems, the first thing we think about is there's something that's not like Christ here. Something in their thinking is not like Christ would be thinking if Christ was living in their skin, in their situation, they would be able to handle this and not need to come to me for help. I need to help them get there. I need to help them see their problem in that context so they could be in the image and likeness of Christ who was in the image and likeness of his father. You know, Adam, as I said, um, blew his situation. But in John 8, um, Jesus talks about uh, his uh, identity with the Father. And uh, the Pharisees were pressing him to reveal who he really was. What's your identity? Who are you? Tell us the truth. Why don't you just come out plainly and say it? He said, I've been trying to tell you. Look at my work. So what kind of things I do. I do what the Father tells me to do. My Father's my witness. Bring your Father here. <laughs> my Father, uh, he, he's not coming here. And then a conversation begins about slavery. And Jesus talks about enslavement. And of course, he's talking about sin. But the Pharisees say, uh, we're never in, we were never enslaved. What are you talking about? Isn't that a bad memory right there? That's a lapse, isn't it? Their history come, was come from coming out of savory. But he, they said, well, we're a children of Abraham. And Jesus said, uh, if you were children of Abraham, you would do what Abraham does. And Abraham believed in me. And you don't, say. In fact, you're trying to kill me. Matter of fact, just like your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he finally tells him, you are of your father the devil. In other words, you're just like your father. You're reflecting your father. You're mirroring your father. You're imaging your father. 
If your father was Abraham, you would mirror him. You would image him. You would be like him. You would think like him. You would believe like him. And he had the faith to believe in God and believe in me. So that tells us that everybody, and I mean every single person on the planet, is imaging. They are all mirrors. They're imaging their spiritual father. And to the degree of problems that they have or is to the degree of, of whether they're Christians or not. And if they're Christians, how much they're growing in the grace of God to be a reflection of Christ. So if we're going to focus on counseling people from their heart out, and I'm, we, you know, we know all about idolatries and our desires, and those things are incredibly important, but... Underneath that, even underneath that, is this whole issue of stewardship of the image of God. We were all walking in darkness. Ephesians 2 says we were living according to the prince of power of the air. I didn't know it when I was unsaved. In fact, I was an atheist for a while. Some of you know that. You couldn't have convinced me that I was walking according to what the devil wanted me to walk into and living like him and behaving like him and thinking like him. <clears throat> but let God be true and what? <clears throat> Every man be a liar. I was snookered, deceived. Now I'm purposefully, meaningfully, deliberately trying to live according to my father my new father in heaven, as a child of God. And the more I become like Christ, the less problems I have. Isn't that strange? It's strange and wonderful. (laughs) That's how we glorify God. When when, when uh, a mirror does an accurate job of reflection of the object before it, that's a quality mirror. That's a good mirror. I mean, have you seen old mirrors that have got stuff all over them, built up crud over years, you know, uh, and you start working at polishing that, and you can see your reflection to somewhat, but it's, you know, skewed in some kind of way. But you work on it, work on it, work on it, and eventually you get it to a place where it really shows you well, still a little imperfection scratches, and you still work on it. I'm, I'm sure none of us unless you're a specialist, this area would spend that much time with any mirror. We'd pitch it and go to Walmart and get a cheap one. But the idea is, when does a mirror reach its pinnacle of glory? It's when it's not, not attention is paid for itself so much. It's when it's doing a great job of reflecting. That's how we glorify God. That's how we bring God glory is when we are the most accurate in showing what he's like in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we treat one another. So we could ask people that we counsel, here's what the Bible says about God and what he's like and here's his attributes and the communicable ones, the ones that you can have. You can't be omnipresent, so give that one up. But... You can be faithful and you can be loving and you can be kind and all these other attributes, some of which we didn't cover today. 
Where are you not like God? And who are you reflecting in your capacity to be an image? Are you imaging your father? Is your behavior and your choices and your thinking processes, does it reflect the devil? Or does it reflect Jesus Christ? That's why Ephesians 4 says, put off lying and speak the truth one another. Why? Because who's the liar? Who's the one that speaks the truth? Who is the truth? God. Put off stealing. Why? Because who's the thief? Satan. Corrupt communication. Who's, who's the guy that talks like that? The devil. It's putting off the devil in his image. And it's replacing with putting on Christ. Because you're made to be in the image of Christ if you're saved. If you're here and you're not saved, boy, you need to get saved. Otherwise, there's no hope. You're living in a vacuum with no purpose, no identity, no connection, and no life, no sun to give you the, to make you a sunbeam. You're really a vanished nothing. That's why life seems so empty and nothing filled because nothing's there to give it meaning and purpose. Well, I'm going to get to the end, skip some things here for time's sake. How are we doing with that imaging God? And the bonus is another whole message. But just feed you the idea and the concept because I think this is a large problem in the church today, has been for a long time, that God is really a a Trinitarian God, and everybody can say amen, they know that. But the implication of that is this. Human relationships are to be mirrors of the image of the Trinity. Our responsibility as fellow Christians is that whenever we're together, it's supposed to be a manifestation, a demonstration of what the Trinity is like. The way we interact, the way we love each other, the way we talk to each other, the way we talk about each other behind each other's back is all a demonstration an image, a mirror, because that's, that's what we are. We are mirrors. That's what we are. So who are we mirroring? When you get a bunch of tr- Christians together and you sit around and talk about the pastors in a negative way, just imagine Jesus and the Holy Spirit separating from the Father and sitting around talking about, you know, he doesn't always have it right. He sure is stubborn about some of his plans, you know. I mean, it's absurd to, th- to consider, isn't it? It should be just as absurd when we behave that way. And marriage is a, a subset, you might say. It was the first, uh, first development of God in the, in the manifestation of the Trinity. He made two people instead of a church full. Two people, married them, put them in covenant so they wouldn't separate and stay together. And he said, the two shall be one. So the two becoming one, functioning together, two separate people, yet one couple, one married, marriage, working together as one, 
functioning together as one with each certain responsibilities, but both equal, just like the Trinity, but some individual responsibilities amongst the Trinity, working together in harmony with a clear leader and a clear helper. The Holy Spirit's the helper, but then Jesus was submitted too, but there's three of those, so they get to have a couple different hats. But the married couple demonstrating the fellowship and joy of the koinonia of the Trinity in a covenant relationship, becoming better and better and better. And that produces fruitfulness and multiplication and dominion. Without that, without that koinonia, peaceful relationship of the Trinity to start with, you don't have the creation in the Trinity. You don't have anything else in the Trinity. And so without that koinonia, fellowship, harmony and peace and mutual grace and submission and, 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 and love for each other, you really can't be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with any success or joy or have dominion. We mess it all up all the time. You can't have a great church without it. So the bonus is we need to think about that for counseling purposes as well because all relationships are... All individuals need to be directed toward imaging Jesus Christ. And all relationships need to be directed toward and focused on the imaging of the Trinity in the way the Trinity relates to each other and functions together. To me, I'm getting more and more solid that that is foundational to biblical counseling. All of our counsel, I believe is driven, should be driven by mirroring God, imaging God. Individually and relationally. And we are stewards of that. We are stewards of the image of God. I'm a steward, you're a steward, but together we are stewards also. I'm a steward of imaging the individual God of Jesus Christ in particular. But when I'm with you, I'm with my wife, I'm responsible to join with you and image the Trinity. I don't know how much sense that makes to you right now, but you've got to think about it. I spent a few years meditating on this. We need to image the Trinity. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege you've given us to call us your children, your sons and daughters. Children who you mean to be just like you. For it's often said as an idiom, uh, awfully, often in a negative way, but it's a truth that you're just like your father. That was always intended to mean that we would be like our eternal father. And since the fall, it's, it's taken on different nuances and stuff. But we want to restore it, Lord. We want people in the world who are unsaved, when they see us, to see something of you that captures their attention because we're like you. And they want that. Everything they want is really you, but they don't understand it. They can't, can't see it. And they should be drawn to it, whatever it is. And they should see it in us. 
when we're together and when we're uh, alone. May we give our passion to manifesting you as best we can and work hard with grace, knowing there's no condemnation, to become more like you and only through knowing you better as we've tried to do today. Keep us on this path, Lord, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.